Welcome to A Smarter You, a University of Lynchburg podcast where ideas come together in new ways. I'm your host, Hannah Belliacci, and today we will be discussing the 17th president of the United States, Andrew Johnson, who also happens to be the first president to face impeachment. To tell us all about that, we have Dr. Adam Dean, the John M. Turner Distinguished Chair in the Humanities here at the university. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Hannah. And joining me today to co-host is Director of Communications, Brian Gentry. Hi, Hannah. Thanks. So your talk uh, on October 24th is titled A Ranked Demagogue and Damned Scoundrel, and it talks about Andrew Johnson and the Reconstruction period. Uh, so why exactly did you decide to use that quote uh, for your the title of your talk? Perhaps the most eminently, eminently quotable person in 19th century American politics is Thaddeus Stevens. And Thaddeus Stevens was deeply skeptical of Johnson in the 1864 Republican Convention and led the effort to keep him from being on the vice presidential ticket. And those were the words he used at the convention. And then later, Stevens was one of the leaders in impeaching Andrew Johnson. Um, well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Andrew Johnson and how he got into politics in the first place? He's a truly fascinating character. He was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, to a very poor family, which became poorer when his father died. And his mother could not care for him, so she sent him to work as an apprentice for a local tailor. Now, Andrew Johnson hated his apprenticeship, left Raleigh, and moved to Greenville, Tennessee. In Greenville, he joins a debating society. He also married Eliza McArdle who would later take his last name, Johnson. And she taught him how to read and write. He got involved in politics, won a seat as an alderman. From there, he ascended pretty relentlessly in the world of Southern politics, becoming a senator for the state of Tennessee. And like many Southern elites, once he or excuse me, like many white Southern people, once he joined the ranks of the political elite, he became a slaveholder. Now, what catapulted him to even greater heights from being a senator is he was the only senator from a state that seceded to stay loyal to the United States. And why exactly did he take that position to essentially to stay with the Union I think there were three reasons. One, his constituency was in East Tennessee. East Tennessee did not comparatively have as many slaves as the rest of the state and was very much opposed to secession. I think the second reason is that he was simply loyal to the United States that had been a big part of his political background. And then third, he took the Republican Party at its word that it wouldn't interfere with slavery in the South. So he was still pretty invested in the continuing of slavery 
even though he supported the Union during the war. Yes, and he was well aware of the role of slavery in bringing on secession. He just thought slavery was safer in the Union. And again, he took the Republican Party at its word that it only wanted to prevent slavery from moving west, not abolish slavery in the South. So he may have stayed loyal to the Union, but not necessarily for reasons that we should admire today. Well, if there is one thing that can be admired about Andrew Johnson, it was his kind of stubborn loyalty to the United States that came at great personal risk. So in April of 1861, he was traveling through Lynchburg, Virginia. Yes, after Virginia had seceded, and that put him in a very awkward position of being the only senator from his Tennessee hadn't seceded yet, but it was moving that way. So he's this lone holdout on secession going through Lynchburg. An angry mob boards the train in Lynchburg, threatens to pull his nose and do worse. That's like a big 19th century insult to pull someone's nose. And he has to be restrained from firing his gun in response. And luckily, the train conductor and his cousin train conductor's cousin or supporters of the union and they get him out of town into Tennessee but right here in Lynchburg so never heard of that before right here in I have to admit that the more I spent a, a really long time reading Andrew Johnson's personal letters speeches and I increasingly came to not like him But if there is one aspect of Johnson that is likable, it was his devotion to the United States at great personal risk. Okay. So you mentioned that you liked him less and less the more you read of his writings and everything, and that there's not much to be admired about him. So I grew up in North Carolina, where he is from. And I remember in third or fourth grade, as we were studying state history, we were taught that something to be proud of was the fact that some presidents had been from North Carolina, including Andrew Johnson. Uh, They didn't tell us a whole lot about him, but they certainly did not tell us that he was a rank demagogue and a damned scoundrel, as Thaddeus Stevens said. Um, And so um, on the one hand, his story kind of sounds like a... um, a, an American dream type story of someone who was born in I guess poverty that is and something eventually became president. About you know, that's kind of this as well. dream of anyone can do this. Um, and he's an example of that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure he was grateful. His wife taught him to read and write. But along the way, what what was it that I think the people who knew Johnson the best, and that was not just Thaddeus Stevens, but Parson Brownlow, who was actually a close Johnson ally during the war, but came to despise him post-war. They both realized that he had almost limitless and uncontainable personal ambition. And that explains a lot of the political decisions he makes. So Johnson, despite being a poor white Southerner who didn't own slaves, once he rose in politics, he became a big defender of slavery. 
and that was almost by necessity to succeed in Southern politics. And he went so far, this is prior to the Civil War, as to support a bill in Tennessee that would force free black people to either leave the state or be re-enslaved. Wow. Yeah. And so you talk about the, well, the unrestrained personal ambition. So was he just kind of in politics for himself? Was that the perception that people had? or? I think the two things that explain Andrew Johnson's political career are first, a thirst for power and personal ambition, and then second, a commitment to white supremacy. It's interesting, though, because people debated that exact question at the time, and two political allies, Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune and Parson Brownlow of Tennessee, Greeley said, Johnson's just about white supremacy, and Brownlow said, no, he's just really about personal advancement. And Brownlow said, if Johnson could gain by appointing an African American to his cabinet, he would. And I think the truth actually lies somewhere in the middle, that he was committed both to white supremacy and to personal advancement. So to answer the first part of your question, I do think Johnson was committed to the United States, and that combined with his constituency in East Tennessee made him take this decision to stay loyal to the Union, which did kind of conflict with his personal ambition, like you said. So why did he actually get on Abraham Lincoln's ticket in 1864 he first, he was a hero in the North, regardless of his racial views and past political career. Many Northern abolitionists praised him as this hero who had stood up to secession. And he started to switch his political views and make it seem like he was more opposed to slavery than he actually was. I think he gave his first public speech opposing slavery after he had already decided that slavery was disintegrating in Tennessee, even though the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to the state. And then at the 1864 political convention, some of his allies saw an opportunity for him to become vice president, and he wanted them to assure people like Thaddeus Stevens that Johnson was opposed to slavery. And how he actually got on is kind of a quintessential shady backroom deal. So in the 19th century, presidents didn't often pick vice presidents. It's not like today. And Lincoln actually sent a letter to the Republican convention saying, don't look to me to pick someone. 
you know, it's up to the convention. Whoever you want, I'll have. And this is going to be complicated, so stay with me. Existing Vice President Hannibal Hamlin didn't really like being Vice President. He thought it was an unimportant position. He wants to be Senator in Maine. So he's open to stepping down, someone else coming in. There's some really opponents of a guy named a really William Henry Seward in the cabinet. Like they want to nominate a New Yorker to be vice president. He was very dedicated having to having, like, if the South wanted to see, good for Lincoln, if the South were so Lincoln to see that he would Seward, be fine then, with that, and just sort of like, it's actually if the Confederate States were to exist today because of that point. Defenders like Johnson would have been behind us. So then, how did Johnson's his political career take a turn? As a way, and how did he end up uh, being vice president for Abraham Lincoln? Political movement. So it's this complicated, shady, smoked filled room political scheme that actually got him on the ticket in 1864. Mm -hmm. That's what some critics of his ambition If it would have said. gotten him ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he definitely flipped a switch. A uh, great example is in October 1864, after he has the vice presidential nomination, and it's an election year, so that's when Lincoln and Johnson are running to be president. He gives a speech in Nashville where he declares himself to be the, quote, Moses of the colored people, end quote. That's his words of the time, that he'll lead them to a future of equal rights and prosperity. And, of course, his course as president does the exact opposite but this speech attracted so much attention, even from international newspapers, that when he took over from Lincoln as president, the prevailing consensus was that he would be more radical than Lincoln. More radical in the sense of pushing reforms and yes. positive changes. Yes. Positive changes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, the exact opposite turned out to be true, but he... Because of that speech and other speeches given in that election year, it did appear to a lot of observers that he had flipped a switch. We, we hear a phrase a lot in politics these days, um, maybe not so much these days, but in the past 10 or 15 years, a lot of people have accused their opponents of being flip-floppers, uh, flip-flopping, changing their, their views when it's politically expedient. Um, but Johnson actually convinced people when he did that. He did, and that wasn't a hard stretch because many Northerners themselves had been radicalized by the war. That is, driven to more strong anti-slavery views and even considering African Americans to be citizens. For example, Abraham Lincoln went from explaining, I'm not an abolitionist, 
I'm in favor of a 13th Amendment guaranteeing slavery in the South to by the spring of 1865, he's calling for black voting rights, a 13th Amendment that abolished slavery and even land redistribution. So with all the massive change that was going on, a lot of people said that so saw, you mentioned could see earlier that their views about how changed, he so started changing his views, Johnson's which was essentially a stepping stone to well. getting him on the ticket, yes. even though there were some shady, shady moves going on. Mm-hmm. Um, were these, and you mentioned like if he could, like like you said, if he could appoint an African American to his cabinet, he would. Um, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so were these, w- was this change of heart and his change of opinion, was that something that he organically went through or was it just sort of like, okay, if I'm going to get ahead in politics, so I need to John Wilkes like Booth assassinated and Lincoln and the trigger to that assassination was actually Lincoln coming out in favor of black voting rights. Now, Johnson switched course entirely. So there was a lot of predictions and political horse trading on what would Johnson do. But when he came out, he said that to be readmitted to the Union as a defeated state in the Confederacy, you only have to do three things. You have to repeal (laughs) secession, you have to observe emancipation, and you have to disown the Confederate debt. He doesn't say anything about black rights other than just vaguely you have to agree to emancipation. So there's no black voting, no commitment to land redistribution. And so what ended up happening in the summer and fall of 1865 is first there was a lot of violence directed against freed African Americans and those white Southerners who had supported the Union. Kind of reprisals and violent efforts to keep people in their place, according to the white Southerners in charge. And these governments also implemented what were called black codes, which were pretty direct attempts at reestablishing slavery in all but name. And interestingly, what pissed off the northern public the most was the election of former Confederate congressmen and senators and high-ranking people to the U.S. Congress. And so remember, the North on its own lost over 300,000 people in the American Civil War, and they looked at Johnson and said, are you nuts? you are reversing the results of the war in the So it peace. didn't take long for this person who was claiming that he was a Moses to lead, to lead black Americans to a better future to show what he was really like. Now, in political cartoons turned that phrase so Moses you, into kind so of a political sarcasm that, and mocking. Like of the views and of actually African-Americans gaining more rights and other minorities time, in the United States at the time. Denounced Johnson for you, you mentioned his that fault. after would, uh, Abraham Lincoln died, would he reconstruction became more radicalized in the sense have gone of better if Andrew Johnson had not been Andrew president? Johnson had this plan for reconstruction, um, but what exactly? Were That's some impossible of the to know. Where, but I think where, the where answer exactly is did he yes. go wrong? 
it would have had to have been better. He single-handedly killed Landry distribution, which had passed before Lincoln was assassinated. And the way he did that was by pardoning as many ex-Confederates as possible so that they could reclaim their land. And the failure of land redistribution played a big role in the failure of Reconstruction and continues to shape American life to this day. Yes, and what's really interesting and new about my research is that I think he inspired violence on the ground. So I spent a lot of time looking at Ku Klux Klan depositions and accounts, and numerous Klansmen supported Johnson, and the Nor in the North Carolina Klan, they thought Johnson was the head of it. Now, that's not actually true. He wasn't the head of the Klan. But what it shows is that his speeches and actions were encouraging violent resistance in the South and terrorism. Now, that's actually one of the reasons he was impeached. Article 10 of impeachment accuses him of making violent and intemperate harangues that incite violence. Now... What's particularly fascinating and relevant to today is that when Johnson's impeachment moved from the House to the Senate, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Salmon P. Chase, insisted that impeachment proceedings only focus on specific crimes. And there was no specific crime about giving a violent and intemperate harangue. And so what impeachment focused on was Johnson's violation of the Tenure of Office Act. What was that act? The act itself is of dubious constitutionality, but it prevented the president from firing a cabinet member without congressional approval. What it was about was that Congress wanted to take control of Reconstruction policy, Johnson continued to frustrate that, so Congress wanted to protect someone in his cabinet who was issuing orders to the army, and thus enforcing Reconstruction. <laughs> that person was the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. And so when Johnson fired Stanton in violation of the Tenure of Office Act, that was a specific violation that, after Chase kind of announced that you can only focus on specific crimes, that's what the article that Congress chose to focus on and then was the point of the Senate okay. trial. How did he escape conviction? Well, it was pretty so dang close. Say that these actions okay, it was one vote, one vote Johnson had taken, in the Senate, which essentially led and uh, he to, escaped like, w with having one foot in the grave. Um, Reconstruction-wise, could you say there that was these actions about are essentially what led him to being impeached? That was Benjamin Wade, President Pro Tem of the Senate. 
why was there skepticism about Wade? He was considered too far left. Why? He gave a speech calling for women's suffrage, which at the time, very taboo. So about 50 years off. And yes, he also gave a number of speeches promoting labor unions and none other than Karl Marx, as in the Karl Marx, in his preface to Marx's famous book, Das Kapital, said, you know, Ben Wade's a really good guy and pushing for reform. And, and so he was he was not convicted, <laughs> he was, he was not but it wasn't because necessarily because they did not think he had actually broken that law, but it was because they didn't want to kick him out because of his replacement, who his replacement would be. Who his replacement would be. And then another reason is I do think there was some discomfort with the convicting him on the basis of the Tenure of Office Act. I think if the Chief Justice had allowed some of the other articles to go through and be a subject of the trial, that would have had a greater chance of conviction. But he chose to almost force it to be a, you know, did Johnson commit a criminal act? And then finally, there was some chicanery. That is, Johnson bribed a senator from Kansas named Edmund Ross with access to government positions and money to help him vote for acquittal. And then I also, I know I said three reasons, I think there's a fourth. That was an election year. And the prevailing wisdom was that Johnson was so unpopular that he would not get the Democratic nomination, and if he did, lose horribly. And so why impeach him in May of 1868 when he's going to be out in November anyway? Well, I think Nixon mm-hmm. was became very quickly unpopular as revelations of what happened at Watergate, and probably more important, the cover-up <laughs> occurred, and that played a big role in the American distrust of government that I don't think they think is still in existence today, and. In the contemporary world, it remains to be seen, you know, how unpopular Trump's actions with Ukraine are. Mm-hmm. Very taboo. Mm-hmm. That question is almost impossible to answer. I'll quote Gerald Ford that what is a high crime? It's whatever Congress decides it is. And so there can be political motivations behind how people define what's a high crime or misdemeanor. Yeah, but what's interesting is that in both the Clinton and the Trump impeachment, and those were the two that happened in my lifetime, 
the defenders of each have just completely questioned the motives of the impeachers, saying that the motives are nothing but partisan and they're completely innocent of wrongdoing. And Johnson used that tract as well, but impeachment, was, in Johnson's case, was a reluctant decision driven by very real concerns over the effect he was having on the country. So let me be absolutely clear, it was not a partisan impeachment, meaning they didn't impeach him because he was a Democrat and they were Republicans. And so I would encourage modern-day Americans to kind of a little, kind of ignore some of the hot air around that question and instead think, what actually happened? And does that rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor? Yeah, you know, I was... You, know, you and I were about the same age. I was a teenager during the Clinton impeachment proceedings and so you've while talked a lot preparing about for the this podcast i was that made him so uh, was unpopular with uh, the electorate and among and his own cabinet members been discussed, um, are there any actions that are similar to other presidents, presidents that have gone through the impeachment process not really faced impeachment proceedings at all but they have um <laughs> ha people have talked about impeaching this president or that president over things um such as starting a war um you know, there were people who talked about um, impeaching Barack Obama, and there, were, there was actually someone who filed a bill that would start an inquiry, but the bill didn't go anywhere. Um, but then I was interested to—I thought it was interesting that before the Clinton impeachment actually took place, there was an attempt previously to impeach him with something related to fundraising, uh, political fundraising allegations— that bill didn't go anywhere, and then the Monica Lewinsky scandal came to light, and they impeached so him for So impeachment um, can occur um, according to the Constitution. So, it says that um, it can occur it, in a way. It seems like they had already decided to impeach him. Commit high crimes or a misdemeanor. So what exactly and, uh, do you does think that? Some of what, that, that goes how, on explain the scale or, as to um, the smallest thing that a president or, would need to be impeached? Or does Congress take it a little more seriously than that? I'd certainly like to think that Congress takes it more seriously, and I, I, I honestly believe that they do. I think there's always the fringe of either political party that is views the president of an opposing party as so much an enemy that they want to impeach, but I think the vast majority of Congress only wants to impeach for legitimate reasons. And that was true in the Johnson era as well. As early as 1866, the Chicago Tribune wanted to impeach Johnson for drunkenness. Okay. And he actually, that was true. He had a problem with alcohol. But it never gained steam until February of 1868 when enough of Congress had been convinced that there were some serious high crimes that he had committed. I, I thought it was interesting earlier this year, uh, Nancy Pelosi said that she would not pursue impeachment uh, because she, I think she said it would divide the country. And a lot of people say that we are very divided as a country. Political polarization has grown quite a bit. Um, some people even say that we might be heading towards civil war. But as a civil war scholar, 
looking back at that and looking at where we stand today, um, how do we compare to that period that led up to the country literally dividing with secession and war? I think the biggest difference is there's nothing like slavery that divides Americans. So slavery turned the South into the fourth world's fourth largest economy at the time. Completely different social structure than the North. And we don't have that kind of deep structural divide today. What is eerily similar and depressingly so is the media environment. So the media environment before, during, and after the Civil War was polarized. And if you read a pro-Johnson paper versus an anti-Johnson paper, I'm going to share some of those in the public talk I give. It's two different worlds in two different realities. And I think, unfortunately, that's where we are today as a country. So how do you suggest the electorate today sort of try and minimize this polarization? Because um, like you said, part of it does fall onto the media. But what can we as an electorate, when there are so many different options, do to sort of minimize it? I think that we need to be discerning consumers of the media. So we need to value real journalism and not dismiss news that challenges our biases as, quote, fake news. And respect news outlets that really try to have journalistic integrity and deliver facts. Not just, this is a blog post, or this is a meme someone's sharing on Facebook, or this is a opinion piece that, oh, that slams the other side. You know, really look at the facts, use good judgment when evaluating media. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Adam, Brian, thank you so much for, for having us. Thank you very much. Is there a Lynchburg professor or alum you'd like to hear on the podcast this season or a topic you'd like us to tackle? Email ucm at lynchburg.edu to let us know. Until next time. Well, I learned, I learned a lot in that. I think yeah. the chances of Trump being impeached are lower than the chances of Johnson. Really? <laughs> yeah. The Republicans had a supermajority in Congress and the Senate and still couldn't get it done in 1868. Okay. I think there has to be 20 Republican senators, and so far only the senator from Utah has indicated that he would vote yeah. for impeachment. That's true. So it's mathematically difficult, if not impossible. To get 19 other Republican senators? You know, seeing, you know, seeing as so many people say that there's nothing Trump could do to lose their support, mm. they might be telling the truth with that, so. Yeah.
That's so late in his presidency. Um, this term. Mr. Rue got that going on too. Yeah. And that was an issue. Johnson.